This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. We are so happy you are here. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the tenacious Mr. Simon Belanger. How are you doing, brother? It's good to see. Uh, it's good to see your face. We got a good good show today. Yeah, it should be a fun one. Just uh, you know, a little break overall of the uh, financial sector as a whole. Maybe uh, we'll t- news cycle. News cycle. The exactly. News cycle. Yeah. yeah. So there's going to be a little <laughs> bit about SVB, but not too much. Uh, we're just going to come back to concepts. So uh, fun little break from it. That's why the Monday releases are such a breath of fresh air because we get to take the 10 million foot view on financial markets, portfolio management, and just good old investing concept because it's really important, man. Like You can get caught up in the news cycle and that's exactly why I wanted to start today's show with a topic I am calling irrational optimism. Irrational optimism is a personality trait, a gene that is just in some of the world shakers and world builders uh, of, of people who really do amazing things. And what is this, you say? Irrational optimism is a character trait that these innovators and thinkers and great investors have. It is when their world looks like it's falling apart, news is negative, uh, <laughs> The news cycle's only negative. Sentiment is at all-time lows. And you face this extreme uphill battle, especially with the psychology of your own behaviors. And they're just enough crazy. They're just crazy enough to do it. Um, so something I find funny is my buddy Calvin, he started an automation shop and they, he literally builds robots that get deployed in manufacturing plants. He has like some huge contracts with, with large uh, manufacturing, a lot in the auto sector. And he's been rapidly expanding, just a great entrepreneur. He's got this br- brand new facility um, last year. So shout out Ethos Automation. They're in Brantford, Ontario. They're, they're crushing it. And I was with them last summer and we had a good laugh on this exact topic because to do amazing things, you have to be just smart enough to start and just ambition, ambitious enough to go for it and just dumb enough to think that it's going to work. Because if you knew all of the challenges that you'd face, you'd have to be dumb to want to do it or think it's going to work. And that, to me, that is what irrational optimism is perfectly summarized. It's just enough just dumb enough to think it's going to work when every sign of rationality is telling you it won't. It's like this podcast, Simone, okay? Most podcasts fail. Uh, you and I know the statistics. 90% of podcasters statistically never make it to episode 21. So nine, uh, only 10% of podcasts make it past episode 20. Um, we had irrational optimism to, to push through and, and think that all this hard work was going to pay it off. And now we're staring at three and a half million listeners alone this year. And so that, that's an example of just like 
if you knew how hard this was going to be uh, to, to keep consistent, and now it feels good, but there was a long time there, right? We, we were just irrationally optimistic that it was going to work. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we were also just doing it more as a, a passion project. And it was for, yeah, fun, it was yeah. for fun, exactly. I don't, I don't know if we had any expectations that were that high. We're just, uh, you know, I think we just wanted to see some traction. And then, yeah, right. it's always good. At, the bar was set pretty low. Yeah, the low. bar was definitely set <laughs> maybe, pretty low. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's kind of a bad example, but <laughs> you know, you know what I, yeah, you know I, what know I what mean? mean. Like, if someone mm-hmm. is, is to tell you like how many hours are going to go into it, uh, you'd be like, oh, yeah, like you'd have to be irrational to to join that venture. And where I'm going with this is, great investors also have this, uh, which is this great sense of incredible ability, wit, intelligence uh, to, to pull off and uh, being a great investor. But part of their brain that has any sense of pessimism turns an irrational blind eye. Um, and, and, and what this means is it's very similar to being cautiously optimistic but it's even more dramatically having the ability to say, yeah, sure, things might look bad right now, but if we zoom out how far we have come and where we're going to go over the long term, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And, and, and most sane people have the actual uh, behavioral psychology, the bias where human intuition kicks in and like goes into protection mode. It goes into cautious mode. And that's exactly when the great investors have irrational optimism and actually go against the grain to achieve alpha in their investment returns. Um, and so I wanted to kind of contextualize this with a great investor. So let's look at Phil Fisher. He wrote the classic book, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, which I somehow only ended up reading in full last year. I think I'd read bits and pieces of it, but I read in full last year. And he was known as a great growth investor. Uh, you know, there was the great, at the time, there was the great, uh, you know, Ben Graham, who was the great uh, value investor. And, and Fisher was known as one of the great growth investors. And he believed that if you held great companies for a really long time and avoid selling them unless you know the fundamentals have dramatically deteriorated, this is a, a strategy that requires supreme long-term views and optimism about the business existing and thriving decades down the line. Phil Fisher was born on September 8th, 1907. He passed the, the late great Phil Fisher passed away in 2004. All right, Simon, here is the the wall of worry, which is a topic that I'm going to stash for another time here. But the wall of worry for Phil Fisher, he's a young boy when World War I is happening. After the war, the Spanish flu circled the entire globe in four months, claiming the lives of more than 21 million people. The United States lost 675,000 people alone to the Spanish flu in the year of 1918. After the roaring 20s, the Great Depression is a ruthless recession. Stocks get pummeled, peak to trough down more than 50%. Things look terrible. Now he's 32, he's come out the other side, and World War II starts. Oh, great. 
Uh, you know, after the war, which raged on for many years, you have the era of stagflation, which was not a good time to own stocks. Boom, right into the Vietnamese war, the, the, war, the Vietnam War, Black Monday, the Cold War, all the way till the tech bubble implosion in his last years. Those are just some of the main events that had huge drawdowns in the market. There was more. Uh, these are just memorable ones. And he ended up going on through all of that, managing money and writing books about holding great companies. This is irrational optimism at its finest. Um, here in 2023, the negative news cycle is heightened by bad incentive structures, clicks and catastrophes. I certainly have my worries as any sane human does, but I remain irrationally optimistic for the markets and, and creating things that people find value in both in my career, but also as an investor. Um, and, and I wanted to highlight this segment because it is so hard to find good news in financial markets, even when we are on that gigantic bull run, <laughs> you know, from like basically 09, 10 to, to end of 2021. It still felt like, you know, the news cycle is always negative because that's what generates clicks and incentives are built like that. And so uh, zoom out and take a take a dose of irrational optimism. You'll uh, you'll feel better about your life. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even with all the pessimism, I'm like, we haven't, you know, we've made some small sales here and there of our stock portfolio, but for the most part, we remain pretty close to fully invested. I mean, at least for me, I think for you as well, right? And for me, yep, I think the the main thing for me, the change has just been uh, definitely hedge a little bit the, the type of stocks that I own just to, uh, you know, be able to depending on what outcomes will happen with the economy i've kind of i'm starting to hedge a little bit my portfolio just so it's better position in different kind of outcomes but again i haven't sold or anything like that for the most part all my big positions are still the same so that's uh, that's how i approach it from an invest investment perspective right you might be positioning yourself up for success like like all investors should um which shouldn't be mistaken as like, yeah, like you said, you're still fully invested. You're still taking the, the 10,000 foot view and you're still extremely optimistic about the future. Um, when all signs and human intuition goes against you, especially when you're being thrown the news cycle, the 24 hour bad news cycle. It's, um, it's not healthy, man. I, I, like when people are like, oh, have you heard about this or about that? Or have you seen what's happening with this stock today? I'm like, nope. And like, don't you own it? I'm like, yep. That's, you're right. I, I, it's, it's irrelevant to me. These, these daily moves, weekly, monthly, even annual moves are relevant on the stock price. I am focusing on the business fundamentals. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's the, the right thing to do. Now we'll move on to some more investing concept, a thread that got uh, flagged to me by Joseph D, who was at the uh, baseball, the Blue Jays meetup. Yeah, oh, Joe. Yeah. I Shout out, yeah, Joseph. I think it's probably Joe. I don't remember. But anyways, Joe or Joseph. Joe. <laughs> um, so oh, yes. He's a great yeah, lad. Yeah, he yeah, came to the baseball game with us. 
And uh, he flagged the thread by Ben Felix, uh, who does some videos on YouTube as well. And I thought it was a really interesting thread because he uh, did a look about DCA versus lump sum investing and which one actually has the better outcomes. And, you know, I think it's for the most part, I'll, I'll talk about the findings and then you can give me your thoughts about it. But sitting on cash, obviously, you have to sit on some amount of cash if you're considering the strategy one or the other, because, you know, you need to have a decent chunk of cash if you consider lump sum investing. If not, if you're investing every single pay, for example, then you're automatically dollar cost averaging, which is not what they looked at here, they really looked at someone, let's say someone got an inheritance for $100,000. So what's the difference? Is it better to invest it as a lump sum or do as they tested and doing a 12-month DCA again versus a lump sum investment? Now, they use stock indices from Australia, Canada, Germany, Japan, the UK, and the US. While being deployed, cash would be earning the one-month US Treasury bill return. So that that's essentially for the DCA, right? Because at the end of the day, if you're dollar cost averaging over 12 months, let's say you're investing, you know, a chunk every month for 12 months. I mean, that cash that's sitting, you want it to at least earn some returns. And they evaluated the data in several different scenarios. So here are the findings. In all countries, lump sum outcomes were better 65% of the time. And it was a pretty good advantage too. So DCA provided on average zero, well, 38 basis points. So 0.38% lesser annualized returns than lump sum investment. So that's, that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big difference when you look at it annualized when they took the 10% worse outcomes of lump sum investing and compare that with DCA it was essentially a 50-50 outcome but clearly they isolated the 10% worse outcome when looking at periods of volatility lump sum uh, became ahead once more 54% of the time. So almost 50-50 here. And then lump sum also came in 64% ahead of the time when the market was considered expensive. However, they only looked at US data because uh, it was due to lack of data for the other countries that I mentioned earlier. So overall, I mean, using the data they found here in the back testing, clearly, uh, you know, lump sum investing was the better option in terms of return. Um, I'm going to give my thoughts here. Great thread, by the way, from uh, Ben Felix. Uh, any comments before I give my thoughts here? I'm just trying to understand this this experiment. So, or, or this back testing, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah. the, the lump sum, is that just taken like in a bunch of different periods? Like, hey, if I lump sum to here, what would the next 10 years look? If I lump sum to here, what would the next 10 years look like because of course that timing really matters so they just have like a bunch of sample sizes to do the comparison against like how did they do yeah that? i believe so yeah exactly so i think they used uh like i think they use over a century if i remember correctly i don't have mm. the thread in front of me and then they average out the different outcomes okay okay and so 0.38 percent was the difference between yeah. the like better for, for the those 10 years for each kind of 10 year period yeah my, my first thought is yes of course i mean money invested at an implied total expected return versus cash 
should yield better results. But there are a long list of drawbacks associated with that as well, including that sometimes you massively mess that up and you know, it, tell, tell that to people who lump summed in November of 2022, or sorry, in November of 2021, how they feel about their lump sum. Uh, so there, there are, are a couple other factors here to think about, which, which I assume you're going to get to here now. Yeah, exactly. And to be fair, uh, Ben Felix does mention a bunch of these as well. So he does mention that there can be a psychological advantage to choosing DCA method, even if it might not yield the most optimal results. He also has said that DC is necessary to deploy money into if it's necessary to deploy money into an asset, then asset allocation may be inappropriate if you're unable to sustain the volatility of a lump sum, right? So he's kind of going back to, you know, maybe there's bigger issues with your investment strategy. From a psychological perspective, I think it can be a big advantage, like you just mentioned, with people. And I can understand his point on asset allocation, but especially if someone that would be new in investing and puts the money in an index fund just to see it go down significantly during a market drawdown afterwards like that i can see for some people they would panic sell and then basically end up having the worst possible outcome here so i think dc completely losing trust in the market long term because of one bad month or quarter of of market performance that's that is what's the costly mistake is having that happen right Yeah, and that's been my argument for those dividend portfolios, right? We had the discussion before where even if you have a dividend portfolio that, um, you know, is an average yielding, maybe not super high, maybe not low, but you love just having all dividend stocks. And my argument, I mean, I don't, it's not my position on my portfolio, you know that, but the argument behind it is I've always said, look, if it prevents you from panicking in big periods of drawdowns, like they're can be a benefit even if your total returns won't be as good should you be holding you know more growth stocks or mixed in with dividend growers whatever it is well just the fact that you're not panic selling could actually be a really good thing and that's where i come in from that perspective but you know they also use the dca strategy over 12 months so that's a pretty long period for dcaing so you could use an hybrid strategy where you say you DCA over three or six months. So instead of doing that long term, maybe you split it into that lump sum that I mentioned, that example, that 100,000, maybe you split it into 25K installments and you do it over four months. So then I'm sure the results would differ from their back test that they did. And one other idea that he also floated in his thread is maybe you do a hybrid approach where you Put a lump, you know, part of it as a lump sum, and then the rest you DC over six or twelve months. So there's there's different ways to do it. I think that's important to kind of wrap around here is that they only did it under one kind of set of circumstances in terms of the installments. And if you change that variable, obviously you'll come to different results as well. So it's not. I wouldn't say it's a knock against or for DCA per se. I think it's just it shows that, you know, the test that they did with the variables that they did yielded the results that they did here. I'll give you an uh, anecdotal 
uh, experience oh, that I've had very, yeah, okay. very recently. <laughs> no, I don't think it's not old, but okay. it's, <laughs> here's some anecdotal evidence of how you should live your life. No, um, I have a, a very close friend of mine and they're like, Hey, I'm going to start, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get my, my shit together here and start DCAing um, into index funds. Okay. So into low cost, broad based ETFs. And I said, Oh, that is, that is wonderful. That is music to my ears. You should definitely do so. And then like, Oh yeah. Like, should I just throw, you know, what I have ready to invest in, in these, these ETFs. And I'm like, one, I don't provide financial advice, but uh, here's the ETFs that I think are, are really low cost. And yes, you can just do it kind of with one ETF or these two, three ETFs, whatever. And the number, the, the, the dollar, like basically it was like, yeah, just go lump sum it, like whatever. And then I learned how much it was. And it was a lot. It was a lot of money compared to what they make every year. So I know this is a lot of money for them. Um, and I was, I was like, whoa, that's like, nice. <laughs> like, good work. That's like, you've been saving good, good stuff. Um, and so when I found that number, I'm like, okay, let's tone it down a bit, like lump sum, some of it, and then DCA it over even like it's, it's enough where I know that it's so much for you that you could even think about DCAing over like the next 18 months. Um, because you can get, you know, pretty decent return on your cash and, in like a, you know, really basic fixed income instrument or even just a HISA. And so these things matter. That's why it's nuanced. Like if it's, you know, if, if it's like 95% of your wealth, you just walked into with this, you know, lump, lump sum, then you, you can't just think about it the same way. Even if the math says one thing, I the, the the psychology matters here. Like it's 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 nuanced enough that it definitely matters. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really important you know thing to mention, especially with the interest rates that are really high right now. Because obviously the back testing was done over long periods of time. So, you know, we had periods where holding cash really didn't yield anything at all. So right now it does provide, you know, some additional flexibility. And who knows, right? If you do a lump sum, a partial lump sum, and then you DC over time, you know, it also gives you some dry powder. So if you do see a sharp drawdown, you have the flexibility to deviate a little bit from that strategy and be opportunistic with it. So the, that's an extra layer or two that's available uh, depending on what happens. But then obviously you have to be able to, you know, shift a little bit, but that's, you know, it gives you an, an extra ammunition if you'd like. If you're one of the thousands of new folks listening to the show, recently one um we love you Two dca just means dollar cost average it means you are taking a set amount and doing that amount consistently over a long period of time versus i have a 100 grand i'm going to throw it all in the market today versus okay over the next 10 months i'm going to invest 10 grand each and and this just spreads out your market risk of uh getting unlucky it can work both ways, but neither you, I, or Simone have one of those crystal ball things. So uh, that's that's the whole point of it. All right, let's yeah. talk about 
Yeah, what do you I got? was going to add the last thing is the data, uh, for the most part, I would say because it was done on several countries. So most countries, it was 1970s until 2020. But then Canada was 1956 until 2020. And then the U.S. Mm-hmm. 1926 until 2020. So very large samples. Just uh, yeah, just wanted to sample. specify that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool data. And I know I know Felix does some cool stuff. I've talked to him here and there over the over the years. All right, let's talk about Chuck Acri on portfolio management. I found this cool little transcript when he was talking about portfolio management. Don't even know what year it's from. I just saw this screenshot, but I loved it and I want to read it to you guys. Here it is, quote, we don't have sell targets on anything we own. One of the hardest things for an investor is to manage the temptation to sell a business when the stock has gone up a lot or when it's having a lull in its performance. It's maybe particularly hard when you come from the sell side, as I did, where it's always been and remains to be about creating transactions. I don't care about about transactions, and I want to have as few as possible. I like to point out that if you have an investment that has gone up 50 times, the next time it doubles, it is now up 100 times. Compounded return is staggeringly powerful. I have some investments personally that are up over 200,000% and I still own them. Uh, This is amazing because this is true. He has owned American Tower. I think his total return on American Tower is like (laughs) 250,000%. It's ridiculous. Um, I never sold a share. So that's a really interesting takeaway that they never have sell targets because they're holding businesses and letting them compound. Um, it's, it's easy to take those profits and run, but if, if the, if the business is crushing it and, you know, selling, selling winners to buy losers is like, uh, cutting the flowers and watering the weeds. So that's, that's number one takeaway. And number two about transactions, wall street is incentivized for you to trade as much as possible because that creates the most amount of money for the industry. It's always about creating transactions, he says. I don't care about transactions and I want to have as few as possible. Um, any thoughts here? I, I love this. Well, I want Chuck, Chuck Acri's uh, a legend and his portfolio has done stunningly well over time. But uh, I, I, his writings and a few media appearances that he has done are brilliant. I highly recommend people check it out. Uh, no, I mean, just for the fact that if people want to wrap their heads around compounding, just think about it on a small scale. It makes it easier. So let's say you have a dollar doubles, it's two dollars, and then the two dollar doubles again, it's four dollars. But that one dollar is your starting cost. So that's why the doubling becomes it's exponential. So it becomes bigger and bigger over time. So that's why compounding is so powerful. That's just a simplified way to say it. Yeah. Remember, what was it? Um, in math in like grade six like part of the curriculum was for you to learn about a penny doubling for 31 days do you remember this thing i mean i I went on the to school on the quebec side so i don't remember that but you know grade six (laughs) maybe it was just uh, my teacher that's almost 30 years ago um shout out mr ad i don't know if he wants me to say this but whatever um he was by far my favorite elementary school teacher and i remember learning about this stuff and a penny doubled every day for a month of 31 days 
is $21 million. But it's only like, what, 10 and a half if it's a 30-day month. And only five-ish if it's 29. Like February is like, oh, only two and a half million. So those, those last few bits of compounding make up so much their turn. And it's exactly why Acri's talking about this here. He's like, I've been lucky enough to own 50 baggers that doubled again. You know, like that's, that is really what is an exceptional wealth creation for him because he has been lucky enough to own some of these darlings like American Tower for all these years. His own Constellation software for, oh gosh, like 15, 20 years now. Um, he's owned Constellation software roughly. And so many times he could have taken chips off the table and that, you know, 50 bagger just doubled again. No, ne- next thing you know, I have an 100 bagger and it's exceptional what it can do. And this is why he is so reluctant to sell winners. Yeah, no, well put. Uh, now we'll move on because we have a couple more segments, including uh, stocks on our radar with EQ Bank, some new stocks. So make sure you, you stick, stay until the end. Uh, now this one here, um, you know, I'm going to dunk a little bit on two stocks that you own, but I'll li- give Do you it. a chance to, uh, you know, to give your thoughts on that. So. Not to do, obviously, another episode on SVB, but I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the rating agencies and what happened here. So if we go back to the great financial crisis, uh, rating agencies were heavily criticized for putting AAA ratings, which is, if you're not familiar with ratings, basically these agencies will put a rating depending on how... uh, good financially the company is in terms of their debts so bonds that are issued by the companies typically there's you know there's a whole lot of different ratings there's probably around 20 per each rating company they have you know slightly different you know uh numbers numerical numbers i guess or letters associated with it but the two biggest things they need to know is there is investment grade and there is non-investment grade and non-investment grade is essentially called junk bonds so there's usually a much higher chance that the company may go under and depending on how low it is on the non-investment grade or the junk bond kind of ladder um then there may be also a significant risk of defaulting now here, fast forward to SVB, and it's not the same, but it looks awfully similar where the mortgage-backed securities in 2008, the agencies were criticized because they were putting the top rating on those. I yeah, think uh, MBSs had AAA yeah. ratings, and they were literally filled with like a, a, you know, a, a TNT that was ready to explode. Yeah, exactly. It was basically bad loans and they were still saying that they were really good loans. That's essentially what it was. And the big short, the movie, does a pretty, there's an interesting scene where they go to the rating agency. <laughs> I can't remember which one it is, but they basically, yeah. like, the rating agency basically admits, well, you know, we're not going to do it because our competitors are not going to do it. And if we right. do it, then we're going to lose their business. That's essentially yeah. the, the gist of it. Now, what happened with SVB here is on March 8th, the day of the infamous SVB call by management saying that everything was fine, but they needed to raise a couple billion dollars in liquidity. Moody had an A3 rating on SVB. 
A3, essentially, it's still considered investment grade. Now, after the call, it was downgraded by one notch to BAA1. That's still investment grade. So it's a couple notches before like above the junk status or the non-investment grade. Now on March 9th, S&P Global, another rating agency downgraded SVB again by one notch, both considered investment grade again. On March 10th, when a 10 grader or even 8 grader could have told you that the bank was a absolute dumpster fire, both agencies actually downgraded SVB all the way to their lowest rating. And The reason why I wanted to mention this is, you know, isn't it not their job to be able to identify this kind of stuff? So we were, you know, we were talking on the SVB episode whether, you know, where the blame lies a little bit and, you know, is it the depositors or is it the Fed? Like, who is it? Is it management for SVB? But of all of people or all the different you know, institutions, whatever you want to call it, that should have seen this coming. It sure feels like credit agencies should have been a bit more on top of it. Um, I know it's not all of their business, it's just part of it. So I think that's important to mention it. But I was just wondering, like, what your thoughts are on that, because I know you you have small stakes in both companies, Moody's and S&P Global. But the fact that, you know, I don't know if this will impact the confidence in their services or not. I know it didn't really happen after the great financial crisis, but yeah, I wanted to to mention this and what, what your take is on that. Yeah, I have a couple of interesting takes and I have lots of conflicting thoughts and opinions here. <laughs> okay. Full disclosure, I yeah. own... Mm. I own both of them, equal weight, uh, uh, S&P Global, ticker SBGI, and Moody's, ticker MCO. They are, you know, essentially in a duopoly. There's also Fitch in there with with rating bonds. Uh, if you have a bond and you want to issue it, it needs to be rated. They have like a regulatory moat, and there's two names in town for the most part uh, that need to rate them, and it's Moody's and S&P Global. Now, the 08 thing, absolutely. There's There are fingers to be pointed here at the rating agencies for being extremely complacent and having the wrong incentives, clearly, uh, clearly. So there is 1 million percent uh, confliction of interest here when it comes to incentives around rating these bonds and getting their business. Absolutely. Because... It, the incentives are, are set up to fail. Say S&P Global starts being really, really uh, aggressive with rating the bonds lower overall. Like, you know, they instead of giving it AA+, they're giving it, or instead of giving them AAA ratings, which is the highest prime rating, they're giving them just regular AA, AA, which is still high grade rating and probably reasonable and Moody's is throwing triple A's. What, which rating company are you going to go to? You know, it's like, it, it's, it's like you're, you're a student and you're like, Hey, I have my test and I wrote this essay and, uh, Braden, right. Uh, Braden is really, really nice. And he gives everyone an A plus and Simone's more accurate and realistic. And this is probably only like a B minus of an essay. Who am I going to hand my paper to? 
my incentive is to give it to the the nice guy. And so that comes out in in their financial results. And so they are stuck between a rock and a hard place for both these companies with their incentive structures. So that's my first thought, which I don't love. I don't love that. Second thought is the business moat is so strong that it doesn't even matter. Like they're set up with such supreme regulatory moats that, yeah, maybe it's not the best way to run run this business, but it sure does work. Have you looked at free cash flow per share? Um, so, so that's in there as well. That's maybe my like you know more capitalist mentality going in there. Um, and and my third thought here is I don't think they did that bad of a job here with SVB on on March 9th when it was downgraded to BB my. That on the verge is almost, it's like, it's like an analyst putting a hold rating. Okay. They put a hold rating, but you know what a hold rating means? It means sell. It's basically them doing that without losing their jobs. Um, and I think that's enough signal to the market. I know it's broken. I know it shouldn't be like that, but it's enough signal to the market in my mind to go all the way from a AAA rated bond to next to the junk pile in just a few weeks, I think it's enough signal to the market that they're doing their job. Is it good? Is it is it the way it should be? No, I don't think so. Uh, is it the way it is? Yes. Is realistically yes. So that's basically my my thought on this right now. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, I definitely understand that point of view. If they were really, you know, if the incentives were really well-placed, I think they would have downgraded them much sooner. And that's why, you know, there were cracks in the foundation for anyone that was looking for SVB as, you know, early as late last year. So I think that's where I kind of come from, where it was kind of... The regulators, the regulators, Mm -hmm. KPMG, their auditor, and the rating agencies here all have a job to do and none of them were being critical enough. Clearly, uh, like clear, clearly, right? Like, <laughs> but KPMG is only there to audit, right? So they were following the rules though, as VP in terms of, you know, the accounting principle, I think KPMG would have flagged anything wrong with the accounting. With the accounting um, yeah. Exactly. So anyways, no, it was still a fun discussion. I just happened to see, uh, to see that, uh, an article on that. And I figured it'd be interesting to, uh, to talk about it, but I'll agree with you. They, they do make quite a bit of money. So uh, <laughs> and keep in mind, that. these businesses are now gigantic, like software platforms too. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, yeah. Moody's analytics uh, mm-hmm. is close to 40% of the business by, by revenue now. And uh, S and P with cap IQ and the indices, these are gigantic, uh, gigantic organizations. You know, Moody's also owns uh, the Canadian securities Institute, you know, when people get the CSC or a lot of those accreditations oh, to manage that. money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Moody's owns that dude. These yeah. accreditation businesses are incredibly good mm-hmm. because they have the yeah. regulatory moat. You need to get yeah. it. Maybe the the right question is, is it the right cis rating system? Maybe that's the bigger no, question yeah, is, should we, should we be looking at that and potentially looking at changes? Um, I guess that's a question for our governments because uh, the regulators are the ones that uh, would need to uh, 
to agree on to make those changes and clearly they don't agree on anything so probably not much is gonna change i don't see much changing here um to be honest and well if it didn't change after 2008 it's not gonna change after this yeah exactly um, in the meantime, they'll probably keep printing free cash flow per share growth <laughs> for a long, <laughs> long, long time. Such good businesses. But you're right. Uh, this world ain't perfect, but I am irrationally optimistic. All right, let's move on to stocks on our watch list presented by the beautifully amazing people at EQ Bank, a uh, longtime show sponsor here of the Canadian Investor Podcast Network. So shout out EQ Bank. It is time for stocks on our watch list. Uh, Simon, we both brought new ideas today. Um, mine is truly sitting on my watch list right now on Stratosphere. So you can, you can set up your watch list there. Um, and I came across this business by using the product and it is called Wise. It used to be called TransferWise. Have you used Wise yet? Wise.com. No. No? no. Okay. Well, dude. You should. Um, This is not sponsored content, but it may as well be because, oh my God, I am totally endorsing it. The product is pretty amazing. Basically, it's PayPal, but without the fees (laughs) and currency conversions. It's like, and they are going full Costco mode. It's like their mission is low cost. Um, they're very mission driven and, and they do really interesting things to optimize the business for really, really low costs. And, amazing currency conversions. They're like stupidly good. The currency conversions on this platform, like if I'm moving Canadian to to US, they're identical to the exact uh, currency conversion up to four decimal places, sometimes more, uh, which is exceptional. You're not getting that at the, you're not getting that at a bank. Um, and, and so they take this tiny spread and you can see that reflected in their take rates. So from that perspective, it is amazing. Anywho, uh, you dig under the hood and the way that they're accomplishing this with over 50 currencies globally um, by actually setting up everything and basically having this peer-to-peer transaction system, you're realizing they're onto something with a pretty wild network effect that is not impossible, but really hard to replicate uh, infrastructure-wise, no pun intended-wise. So it is a UK-listed fintech um, it's about five billion in market cap. The, the business today, I have almost moved all of my international business transactions from PayPal to here. Um, and why not? It's saving me hundreds of dollars a month, maybe more. Um, and I'm I'm per setting it up personally to use the FX rate. So that's how I came across this idea. In terms of the business, we added their coverage to Stratosphere, so you can see all their KPIs. Active personal customers since 2019. So personal customers, like you know, if I set it up not for my business, has gone from 3.2 million to 7 million on their latest annual number. Business customers has gone from. 100,000 to over 450,000. And so we're seeing like, you know, four and a half X basically on the, the business customers and the, and the personal customers. Total volume moving of money on the, on the platform in USD in just since March of 2019 has gone from 27.1 billion to almost a hundred billion at 99.2. 
since March of 2019 on their trailing 12 month numbers. Exceptional. This translates to uh, on on the last five years of revenue per share growth of 25.7%. Even faster lately, the growth is accelerating. Revenue on a three year is growing at 47%. Earnings per share is exploding. They are gap profitable, but barely. Um, It's it's not a cheap stock by any metric. Uh, if, if, If customer counts and total volume does keep exploding like this, you can certainly justify it. Um, key risks here that are is that their mission is a is basically a race to zero. Uh, it's it's a cannibalize themselves type business, and they have as a result a true innovator dilemma. I, I like the product more than PayPal. I like the UI, I like the UX, UX. I certainly like the fees um, a lot more. And I got to be honest. This renders PayPal basically useless other than the fact that it has that existing network effect for the PayPal to PayPal transactions. But it is a worse business, like Wise is a worse business on unit economics because of this mission. I mean, look at the take rates. They are abysmal. And um, that's kind of the bull and the bear case that the product continues (laughs) to get better, but it's also like... Unit economics not improving over time is not necessarily like, I don't know how that shakes out. So that's why it just exists, exists on my watch list. If I figure out how that works long term, then I'll, I'll be more confident in, in doing more research. Anyways, very interesting product, very interesting stock. I've added it to my uh, dashboard there on Stratosphere and I'm digging more into it. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned uh, this one in PayPal because PayPal, is, I've been thinking of just selling my position for, for about a year now and just transferring that over to Visa and MasterCard. So just kind of leave it at there. And then obviously I have my uh, Bitcoin position to kind of balance the, the other end of it have something more traditional financial realm and then something uh, something different because uh yeah I, paypal has just shifted strategy over time and i don't have much conviction in it anymore i'll be honest <laughs> and Did it's not a big that? it's not Did a big position you? either yeah. Did I send you the screenshot of the customer support I was trying to get on PayPal because I couldn't get into my No, like, but you mentioned account. it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was like an AI chat bot. And I would be like, hey, um, I need to get into my account. Uh, and they're like, sure, I can help you with that. What can I help you with today? And I'd be oh, like, boy. No, like I need to get in into my account. And they're like, sure, I can help you with that. What can I help you with today? And it was just infinite loop. Um, and it would bring you to different prompts, but then back to like, how can we help you today? And I'm like, oh my God. So I, I write like, please give me a human. I have thousands of dollars I need to pay someone on PayPal for my business. And they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. How can we help you? I'm like, okay, this is it. Like we are done. Um, and so <laughs> I reached out to PayPal support after like tweeting them. And then they're like, they're like, how can we help you today? I'm like, oh my God. You guys, like, you guys are so canceled. <laughs> you guys are so canceled. Uh, so I am very bearish on the product these days, but purely anecdotally. Yeah, you know, exactly. Well, mine, it's an interesting name. I may use their services. I'm kind of like you. I'm not sure at this point if I want to be investing in a payment processing business outside of Visa and MasterCard and that kind of, you know. The I, more work you do on it, yeah. you're like, Oh, this all just goes through the rails, you know? 
Exactly. It's just so much easier to own the Visa than the MasterCard. That's it. Now, the one I have is a very profitable business, uh, one that I don't know a lot of people have heard of. It's actually not a small company either. So it's West Pharmaceutical Services, ticker WST. It's listed in the U.S. So West Pharmaceutical is a leading manufacturer of packaging components and delivery system for injectable drugs and healthcare products. So they have two main segments, one being proprietary products and the other one being contract manufactured products. The first one, so proper proprietary segment offers packaging container solution drug delivery system and analytical lab services so like they'll make things like syringes for example that's what a drug delivery system would be and of obviously other kinds as well the contract manufacturer focuses on designing manufacturing complex devices for their pharmaceutical customers so what's kind of nice with the them is they're not they're not the ones you know creating the drugs they're just offering the equipment equipment used by these pharmaceutical companies. Um, I just kind of started slowly digging into it. So I'm assuming some of their products, I'm sure there's um, regulatory approval or FDA approval just because, you know, they're medical, they're still medical devices to some extent. But I'm sure, you know, with my limited knowledge of this, that it's not as, you know, complex as a, you know, a new drug and all the different kind of testings that are involved. Now, quick overview here. If and obviously if the listeners would like me to do a deeper dive at some point, just let me know. I'd be more than happy to uh, to look into it. Obviously, I'm sure I would learn quite a few things because my pharma background is not the best. But, uh, you know, always happy to learn some new things here. The market cap is 25 billion. They have a P of 42 and a price to free cash flow of 34. So not cheap, uh, but definitely very profitable business. Revenues have uh, compounded at 12% over the last five years. They have a pristine balance sheet very little debt they have a net cash position they pay a very small dividend that currently yields 0.23 percent it has been increasing over time uh not crazy increases but still steady increases and they're currently paying a whopping 12 percent of free cash flow so there is definitely some room for uh, increasing the dividend without it being cumbersome on the business and free cash flow per share has just been increasing steadily over time and it's really based on the business because i was looking and their shares outstanding have gone down a little bit but it's not like they've been like buying back shares at a crazy amount um and they have just uh if you compare it to the S&P 500 they've just crushed it and you're looking at a company too that you know the beta like it's not varying it's not a company that's overly volatile either so for having such good returns i mean it's quite impressive what they've done but again this is just a high level overview um but uh, definitely a company that has piqued my interest the organic sales growth i've i've just been on the stratosphere <laughs> platform typing yeah. in all the kpis and, and we track that i didn't even know we had this name to be honest but the entire s&p 500 is in here and uh the organic sales i like has been very impressive like double digits all the way through 19 20 30% organic sales growth and third i wonder if they had a big covid bump like if they were selling uh, they, a bunch of yeah they did for that. 
Yeah, they they were selling. So they had they, they had it on their website where they were uh, selling. I think obviously the needles, but also also the little containers that the Ooh, solutions oh, are con- in. This, the little, little tubes kind of glass. Testing. Yeah, 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 the yeah little yeah, glass yeah. containers um, as well for the solutions. So um, they clearly benefited from that. But again, it's not like. It was a little bump, but it's not like the business was going in the gutter. Like it was, you know, mm-hmm. just going along and very good results even before that. growth, but still yeah. looking good overall. Yeah. And I'll, you know, I need to do more digging, but my assumption is they're probably one of the bigger or the biggest player in that field and really have a moat surrounding that probably distribution manufacturing that it would be very hard for smaller players. That's my assumption. I may be out to lunch completely because I just started looking, (laughs) but that would be my assumption because, you know, it seems like a very specialized field and something that once you have scale it would be very hard for a competitor to come in dude this is quite the compounder i know <laughs> I, I knew you'd love it in terms of <laughs> it's like it's just boring enough that i'm gonna be into it um i mean that in a good way as you know yeah this mm-hmm. is crazy um it's so funny that sometimes you just have these like kind of like industrial names. It's in, I mean, it's in the pharma space, but it's kind of like an adult. I mean, they manufacture packaged goods for, for pharma. It's a company that no one will ever have any consumer facing idea of what they do and it being incredibly important. What are the margins like? I, I, these are, that's my first question with these types of companies. Let me look at the margins here. Yeah. I haven't, uh, Forty percent gross, roughly. Oh, but it like all goes to the bottom line. Wow, they're efficient. Um, yeah, gross <laughs> margins are forty yeah. percent, but free cash flow margins are twenty five. Net free that's cash impressive. flow. Margin. Yeah, it, that's really high. Um, dude, this is sick. I like this. I'm into it. Yeah. You got me. It's, you got yeah, me. It's a, it's a pharmaceutical play without. The pharmaceutical, it's almost. Is the stock way down off like, because it was probably a COVID beneficiary? Uh, it was down. I mean, the time to buy was uh, this oh, fall. Wow. It yeah, it had far. a big drawdown. Yeah, in the fall. Now it's a bit more up, but um, definitely, you know, down from the peaks of uh, 2021. Yeah, I think, again, it's more research is required here, but this is the kind of company at first glance, I'll just, you know, you buy, you forget about it, and you look again 10 years later. Dude, my my concern here, I, you know, I, I can't just speak purely good about no, this because no. I have to have yeah. something. My concern is how on earth are you or I going to understand this business to a like a good <laughs> amount? Dude. Yeah. Remember when I did that, like um, we looked up companies based on market cap and I ended up doing that uh, contact kind of company that yeah um, yeah, yeah implants yeah. yes contact yes. implants i don't really I like I, I forgot the name but uh, oh star surgical star and i surgical. remember yes like learning about it uh, like i had to reread i had to watch videos on actually like how that kind of stuff worked because that was way beyond my understanding and this one i mean i don't know we'll see i, I feel like it'd i guess be, it's not yeah. that confusing 
Well, I mean, I think it, yeah, it depends on the type of packaging. So that's something, you know, when that's something I would do when I research companies where it's way outside of my circle of competence. I'll watch some YouTube videos. I'll try to just understand the basics of the field so I get a better understanding. Even sometimes watch videos that a company puts out, but also um, you'll usually find some, you know, just people that are kind of science driven that'll explain this kind of stuff. So that's what I'll do to try and understand. And then I'll start digging into the company more. Yeah. The key questions that I would have, like I have for every, every company is, how do I know it's durable? Like no one's going to sound the alarm bell for me when all of a sudden a competitor has made a way better solution for their, for West pharmaceuticals leading package products for like, you know, X, Y, and Z. That's always the concern I have with owning some of these names. But if you just purely look at the metrics, like it's obviously something there. Like you don't, you don't just come up with these metrics by you know, and, and, and becoming a $25 billion market cap just for, for fluke. Like that, that's, that doesn't happen. No, exactly. But uh, let us know if you'd like me to do dig into the world of pharmaceutical services. Let me know and I can uh, slowly. Uh, pharmaceutical you know. packaging. Oh my <laughs> God. I love how boring yeah. that is. Yeah. Mm. It's the, so. it's the perfect, boring, sexy. You know, it's so boring that I'm into it. Um, thanks for listening to the podcast today, guys. Uh, if you have not checked out our website, we post the show notes. So we're going to post this for the first time, Stocks on Our Watch List segment on our website. And you'll see that we post for, for our conversation here live on the pod – we are looking at a bunch of graphs and figures and numbers and we usually screenshot them and put them on a doc so that we can be looking at the same thing. And we're going to be putting them on the website. Well, we already are. You can check them out at thecanadianinvestorpodcast.com. You go to the show notes. This will be on there when it comes out. So you can see the, the graphs that we're looking at and uh, it helps provide some context. If you have some time to read, you go on the Canadian Investor Podcast.com and you'll see it there. We will see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.